Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the CA. Today is Monday, May 15th, 2017, and this is Michael. Uh, you will hear Dean in just a couple uh, short minutes. Um, you'll have to do without the uh, the marvelous uh, sounds of my lovely wife uh, for the intro, because uh, out of respect for Blake, uh, the person that uh, we interviewed uh, for this episode, uh, we're doing this episode totally clean, and my wife drops an F-bomb in the intro, so uh, we're just going to do it uh, just me, so you have to put up with that. So I'm not going to do a lot of lead-in because uh, we did a lot of talking. Uh, we talked for um, almost an hour and 20 minutes. And just to give you a little bit of background, like I said, Dean will be uh, Dean's on the um, on the interview, so it'll be uh, it'll be a th- uh, the three of us. So um, I wanted to have a conversation with Blake because uh, I don't want to live in an echo chamber. I say that a couple times during the episode, and uh, so I wanted to have uh, Blake on to have a conversation about uh, Belief Map, which is uh, the website that, and he'll talk more about that uh, during the episode. But I wanted to, have, uh, to start a conversation uh, about belief and coming to belief and all these different things. And we we bounce around a little bit. We we cover a, a lot of ground, and it was it was really interesting. Um, Suffice it to say that uh, he is much more polished at the philosophy game that either uh, than either Dean or uh, me. So that was interesting. But um, we had a really good call, and this uh, this uh, initial interview was meant to be a starting point. And we both, uh, both Dean and I, really look forward to it. And from uh, from what Blake said, he looks forward to uh, to doing this again in the future as well. So. Uh, it's it's going to be really good. We we like I said we cover a lot of ground and uh, it's a great talk. So without uh, without any further uh, delay, I will leave you with uh, I'll leave you the interview with Blake Genta, and uh, we'll just wrap up right after that. And uh, my wife will do the outro because uh, there's no swearing in that. And we will see you next week. Thanks a lot. All right, Dean. So uh, here we go Michael. on the uh, uh, on the line with us uh, right now. From uh, from Texas, awesome. From Texas, no less, is uh, <laughs> is uh, is Blake Genta. Uh, Blake and I have been friends on Facebook now for. I was looking at it, uh, Blake, for a little over a year now. I think I reached out to you uh, just after one of your conversations with uh, Matt Dillahunty. So, uh, so Blake, welcome to the CA. Ah, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. And. Uh, there's there, there's a bunch of stuff that I wanted to talk to you. We we chatted a little bit before we started recording, and um, you you had posted uh, you had posted a little bit online about uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, and uh, but I, I want to talk to you about that. I also want to talk to you a lot about uh, your site Belief Map, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to get into that as well. But uh, if we could start with uh, Dr. Habermas, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I saw that he's a, he's a professor at Liberty University, mm-hmm. and uh, you had posted on Facebook a link to these uh, this course from the Credo Group, mm-hmm. I believe it was, and it was uh, it was kind of billed as thirty short episodes or thirty short lectures, and they were about thirty to forty minutes. Uh, I managed to work my way through all of them, um, and I, I realized very early in that I, that I was not that I was not the intended audience. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, you know, I think it, it might be fair to say that it was, you know, or, or maybe you could tell me if you think it was fair to say it was more aimed at uh, preaching to the choir. Um, I, I actually need to, 
um, check it out. I mean, I saw that on a, I think it was a Twitter post or something. And I looked at it and I was like, Oh snap, uh, it, it's legit. You can actually download all of this for free. And I could see in a corner that it normally costs a bit of money. So yeah. I just retweeted it. I, I trust Gary a lot. Gary is, yeah, he's a professor at Liberty university. Um, he comes from a, I don't know if he went into this in the video series, but he came from a background of, um, skepticism himself. I remember him talking that he, he flirted with uh, deism and, and atheism and some different views. Um, but at the end of the day, when he decided to really buckle down and do his research uh, into what the truth is, um, in looking at Christianity, he decided, hey, or I shouldn't say decided, he realized, because I think he's right, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is false, plain and simple. And yet if, Christ- and if Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that Christianity, at least in some basic form, is true. And so that was his like way of efficiently investigating whether or not Christianity was true. And um, uh, he went into it not believing it, and he came out um, believing it. So he ended up becoming uh, uh, very interested in this topic, and he became uh, arguably the world's leading expert. The only other person behind him possibly is the scholar named Mike Lacona. And um, so uh, when I saw that he put out a, a series on this very topic that he specialized in, I was like, yeah, I, I feel confident referring people to this video series, although I haven't personally seen it myself. Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting. Sorry, go ahead, Dean. No, I was just going to say there's a couple of things there that just started my thoughts going. But before we get into an actual debate, we want to hear a little mm. bit about Blake himself. Yeah, yeah, Blake. We're um, that's that's a that's a good idea. Um, give us a little bit of background on yourself. Were you were you raised uh, a Christian? Yeah, um, I mean, it depends on <laughs> my 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 father and mother are uh, both Christian, and they raised me in a in a uh, with a Christian perspective. Um, now, whether I had a good Christian perspective is another uh, discussion entirely. Part of my story and what got me into um, Christian apologetics, as it's called, or defense of the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, is that that played a transformative role for me. I think a lot of Christians uh, aren't actually very uh, persuaded about uh, what they believe, if they if we can call them actually Christians, at least if they identify as Christian. I think a lot of them notice that Christianity isn't in school. I, I think they notice that, you know, the, the, that religion sometimes seems like it, it's on this personal side of things, and then you have like the real stuff, the the reality seeking stuff that happens more in, in school where we don't talk about it. It's, it's, so religion is your decoration on reality and school stuff is your reality. And that was kind of my perspective. Um, so I, I remember praying and, and doing some Christian-like things, but it wasn't until I ran into an actual case for the truth of Christianity that I, for the first time, thought, hey, you know, I actually have something that the Muslim – or this other competing worldview doesn't have, uh, and that was a, that was a very exciting um, for me. So that was that was kind of part of my story, at least in moving to a more uh, sincere Christian faith. What was that thing that you came across? There was uh, a conference that my youth group was going to, <laughs> uh, an apologetics conference at a big, uh, or not a con- I shouldn't say conference, uh, an apologetic speaker uh, was talking at a large church called Lake Point. And so um, we hopped in a van, the church van, and, and I was just going there to hang out with my friends. Uh, but we were 
taken over there, and, and uh, they ushered us to the back of this gigantic church. And up front was um, this uh, preacher slash apologist named Bodhi Bakum, a very good speaker, very powerful. And he opened up saying, look, you know, this may surprise you, but if you look at the book of Acts, you know, which is the one New Testament book that really talks about um, how early Christians evangelized, it wasn't, it wasn't emotional appeals. They, they were hardcore reasoners. It says over and over again, they reasoned with the Jews. They reasoned with the Jews. Paul was persuading, persuading. These words get used over and over again. Um, and so this is a tradition that we need to enter into. And he made a, I don't, I honestly, I actually don't remember all of what he said. I remember he talked a little bit about Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, their theology, and then he made it, uh, an argument that I personally don't think is very strong today. But at the time, I thought it was strong, uh, strong enough to get me excited. Um, and so that was what got me kind of really interested. And ultimately, when I came home, I did what a lot of teenagers do when they want more information on something. And I got on the internet. And on the internet, there was one really uh, decent apologetics website out at the time that was decently large, uh, and it was called uh, CARM.org, the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Mr. Slick, and, yes. That's right. And um, and I, I I thought the material was absolutely like mind-boggling to me. I was so – it was very exciting to me uh, at the time, again, because the feeling was that, whoa, this stuff is actually true. Um now, I know there was a lot of naivete involved in, in my early research and, and things, but that was at least what got me started. Hmm. Just as a little side note, do you – so how do you view Matt Slick as an apologist? I mean like Matt – like if – and you have to correct me if I'm wrong. You may know more about him than I do. But um, from what I've seen, he's, he's a Calvinist um, and he's you know, quite a hardcore presuppositionalist. Um, yeah. In fact, he, he says many times that, you know, you, you know, God is the necessary, you know, the necessary precondition for anything, um, you know, and it's, you know, from, from us, from the, from the skeptical perspective, well, if you assume that, then anything, but, you know, again, like my brain goes to, well, um, if Cracker Jacks is a necessary precondition for everything, for intelligibility, then therefore Cracker Jacks, like it, like to, to the skeptical person, just just asserting X doesn't doesn't mean anything. So so how do sure. you so how do you view Matt Slick now? Like I mean, you you started your own website, Belief Map. Why not just tag team with Matt and you know work with him? Why did you feel the need to start Belief Map? We'll get into Belief Map more afterwards, but I'm just curious as to what led you, uh, you know, or how you view him now versus how you view him then. Yeah, to answer that second question, Belief Map. You know, when we get into it. We'll see it's a radically different approach to um, the types of questions because of how the information is organized. So that's that's the answer to the, the second question more than anything. Um, as for how I, I view Matt now, I, I personally – I think he's um, a lot stronger when dealing with what are called the Christian cults. Mm-hmm. Um, these are um, uh, things like Mormonism uh, where they all want to say, hey, you know, we're Christian. We identify ourselves as Christian. But when you investigate into their actual beliefs, you find out that they think that God is a 3D – uh, flesh and bone a- alien, basically, that came from another planet, and he was elevated to what they call godhood because he served his god really well. And this is all, you know, near, he resides near a star himself named Kalab, and oh, Jesus yeah. and Satan are brothers, and yeah. so it's very different. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I, I mean, 
I think most a lot of people within the the atheist or skeptical community, you know, look at things like Mormonism, like just this side of Scientology, like like you know, like um, Elohim, you know, is is not a lot less crazy than Zenu, um, to the uh, you know to the atheist or the to the skeptic. So I think we're I think we're on the same page as far as that goes. Um, yeah. Oh, it, it, what I wanted to follow up with, though, is just saying that, so in my view of Matt, I think that Matt is stronger in dealing with uh, um, uh, the cults, the Christian cults in particular. Um, I don't think personally I disagree with his approach to uh, handling atheism and agnosticism and evolution most of the time. Okay. Okay. Do you, do you um, would you say that you identify with a young earth creation model? No, I'm an old Earth uh, creationist. Okay. Okay. And like, and I use creationist loosely because I'm actually very open to common descent. Even. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, so just to get back to to Doctor uh, Habermas for a minute. Um, so like, like I say, I, I went through all of the the lectures. Um, I'll t- I tell you, it it really frustrated me. Um, <laughs> And I, I think it's probably fair to, or it might be fair to say, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, make that assumption. Um, I'm not sure how you would define evidence, um, but and I'm wondering if, if maybe we, you know, do define it differently. If you, based on what you said, thinking that you know uh, Gary Habermas is you know well respected and stuff like that d- during these lectures, and and I, I think you should listen to them to them too. Um, I did find them. Um, in, informative, if you know, uh, frustrating nonetheless, but still informative. And uh, he he loves he talks a lot about Bart Ehrman. Mm-hmm. Um, he quotes Bart Ehrman probably more than anyone else mm-hmm. uh, during that series. And it, and it's what I found interesting is that I mean if you if you look at what he, what he talks about with Ehrman citing you know citing things that Bart Ehrman says as evidence, you could take someone like Robert Price, Richard Carrier. Or even someone you know who's who's not a uh, literal historian like David Fitzgerald, and you could you could sharpshoot any one of the arguments he uses from Ehrman and counter them with something that and then what any of those other three people said. So I found that uh, interesting, but you know none of us here, at least I'm not, I know Dean is, and I, I don't I don't think that you're a historian, right? So I don't think any of us are historians. So maybe that's shaky ground for us to be you know talking about. Uh, um, you know, history in uh, in such a, in too firm a sense. And is David Fitzgerald a historian? No, he's not. No, he's not at all. Um, okay. he, and and he'd be the first one to tell you that that he's not a historian. Uh, he did collaborate a lot with Richard Carrier on um, on his first book. One of his first books, Nailed: uh, uh-huh. 10, Ten Christian Myths That Show Jesus Never Existed at All. Um, he certainly has done his research. Yeah, he certainly does research, but he he'll be the, the first one. Ask, the only reason I asked is because I, I thought I heard you say he was a historian earlier. Oh no, I no, I think if if I said that I misspoke. Um, he's okay, like he'd okay. be the first one to tell you he's not a historian. Um, okay. And when when he was on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, we, we for his new uh, his new set of three books that are out, uh, we we did chat about that, and and he he'd be the first one to tell you I'm not a historian. Yeah. Um. So uh. uh Dr. Habermas ref- refers to the Bible as mm-hmm. evidence multiple times. Mm-hmm. And that, that for, for us is, is really, is it, that's hard to swallow, you know, the, you know, because we, you know, we tend to look at the Bible, like if the Bible, you know, the Bible's true because the Bible says the Bible is true. 
And, you know, that's the definition of circular reasoning. It's like using a word in its own definition. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, you said that you you view, um, you know, Dr. Habermas as a very reliable source. So Mm -hmm. do, do you view the Bible as a as a as a literal historical document that can be used as evidence? Uh, it's interesting that then three, you said he's citing Bart Ehrman. Yeah, and you, many well, times. The time that you cited Bart Ehrman, you could cite this other scholar over here, and you listed um, Richard Carrier, yeah. Robert Price, and David Fitzgerald. Um, the only two of those that would even remotely be, and, and they are, I would call them historians, would be uh, Richard Carrier and Robert Price. Um, the, the challenge is, is, is outside of them, you really have uh, no other mythicists on the academic scene. Um, we're talking about like uh, thousands of people with, with their doctorates mm-hmm. uh, in a relevant field, and, and mythicists aren't, aren't on the chart. Uh, atheists, almost all atheist scholars at Yale, at Cambridge, at Oxford, um, who are teaching or who have graduated – uh, they're all in unanimous agreement with some confidence that there was a historical Jesus. And I agree with you that if you're going to throw out that, in order to get to the point that you think there's no historical Jesus, you're going to get to the point where, yes, you're going to disagree with even uh, a hardcore skeptic like Bart Ehrman. Um, but Bart Ehrman, when he says something, the point that Gary's making is that if, if a hardcore skeptic of Bart's level um, will grant this fact, then all the more you can expect the rest of the scholars all up the spectrum to to acknowledge it. And just to conclude here, what what Gary is doing is he's he's just ignoring the mythicists because that's pretty much what everyone does anyways. So his tactic makes sense, um, but if you take mythicism seriously, then you'll probably be offended with that sort of approach. Oh, I'm I'm not offended uh, at all. I mean, I I fall more in the I think Dean and I both fall more in the mythicist camp than we do the historicist uh, camp, and that's mostly just because and I'll, and I'll let Dean take over because I've been monopolizing the conversation. <laughs> but I, I think that's mostly just because um, you know I don't. Um, in what I've read, and I haven't read everything, but in what I've read, I don't see or I haven't seen a lot of good evidence to support that Jesus was a historical figure. And what did you want to say, Dean? No, it's just uh, it, there's, it, the, the story of Jesus follows the many gods that came before him, born on December 25th, uh, found by three, followed, a, a three kings followed a star to, their, to, to, to find him, um, was uh, crucified or killed in some way, and died and rose on the third day. I mean, these are things that happened to many gods before Jesus, the Jesus story was told. Um, and any writings of Jesus there were no writings of Jesus during the time he was alive. The first actual writings of Jesus came 150 years after he died. So it's difficult to say that, yes, he, he was an actual figure when there was nobody writing of him when he was around. You, you realize that no historian thinks that Jesus was born on December 25th. Okay. No one says that. I understand it's celebrated on, on Christmas. Um, you know, December twenty fifth, but no historian is saying Jesus is is born there. So that would be a yeah. Um, I've heard I've heard things like September, October. Um, uh, you know, and, and I'm not sure. I'd, and I don't know. I don't know how how much truth there is to you know when you know when he was bo- when he was born. Um, but you and, know, and, go, sorry, go ahead. 
Well, yeah, and, and then like, what are you talking about when you say other um, other deities have been crucified? I guess impl- implying that um, that I guess Jesus was a, a copy of this. And, and what deities are you referring to? Um, I, I, unfortunately, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Dionysus. But yeah, Dionysus and it's a, a lot of the uh, the uh, Egyptian gods that came before him, um, and some of the some of the uh, the even even older like the Greek and uh, and. Uh, Gods like that. There was, there was. I, I, can, I have a video of it that I can definitely send you a link for. Um, that talks about how these these gods and especially Jesus was founded on a celestial basis. So you're thinking maybe like zeitgeist and uh, Akaria, Akaria stuff. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can assure you, um, no uh, Egyptian deity was crucified. Um, so I think that what they want to say, the main uh, character would have been Horus, is, yeah, is what I've heard, yeah, heard the most about. Yeah, the main character. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, those Horus, there was Dionysus. Yeah. Um, and I think there were a couple of others. Um, but, you know, something else that Dean touched on, uh, interestingly enough, um, like, I don't know if you've read uh, David Fitzgerald's book, um, you know, but one of the things that he talks about, he talks about a timeline. It, you know, it's like, so from, from a historical perspective, why do you why do you believe Jesus was a historical figure? Um, and this will go back to your question about uh, the Bible. Yeah, uh, I think that what you can do as a non Christian is you can appro- approach the biblical texts uh, as what they are, which were ancient letters and um, little gospels uh, and apocalyptic literature. Um, there, these are these are little things that were compiled together into what we call the Bible now, but these were written by real people, in real sure. circumstances, uh, and only did after it became compiled was it called the Bible. Mm-hmm. And what we can do as historians looking at these letters um, and things don't necessarily go into it saying, "Oh, this is all this is all true." They apply uh, various tests and, and criteria in order to test these claims. So, for instance. Um, a lot of work has been done on testing um, the sayings of Jesus. You know, did, did the historical Jesus actually say this? Sure. Um, and, and some of the criteria of authenticity are going to be things like, for example, the criterion of embarrassment. And the idea there is that if uh, on Jesus, we, we kind of know what the early church wanted to say about Jesus. They're really wanting to elevate him uh, as, as God. And so if in the Gospels here we see texts about Jesus saying that he, for example, doesn't know something, um, something that would have been difficult for the early church to admit. Um, that lends some credibility to the historicity, uh, the accuracy of this particular report, because they, they wouldn't have changed it to look like that. Um, that goes against what they would have wanted. So you have the criteria of historicity, you have the criteria of dissimilarity, which does something very similar. Um, you have uh, other other criteria like um, plausibility, Palestinian environment. Um, I'm trying to remember them all, but they're, these are criteria that get applied by the historians. And, and basically, if you start, yeah, multiple attestation, and if they start to pass these these sort of criteria, uh, that can start to accumulate evidence for the particular saying. That's just an example. Sure. Who who are you referring to when you talk about attestation? Like, um, like, are you referring so, to people like, like Josephus or Tacitus? No, no. The criteria of multiple attestation wants to say that as long as you have independent sources 
um, which don't, which aren't influenced by each other, then that suggests that they, if they're both reporting the exact same thing independently, then that seems to draw to a much earlier time, a much earlier source, which ultimately gave rise to those at least two independent attestations. So if you have, for example, um, Mark reporting one thing and then Luke reporting um, uh, the same thing, and you can establish that, or let's go with, just to keep things simple, um, Matthew and Luke. Most scholars don't think that Matthew and Luke ever saw, you know, or didn't see each other's Gospels when they're, before they were writing. Um, so if you can find some detail that shows up in both of these, um, and especially if it's not even found in Mark, then you're looking at something that we have reason to believe traces back earlier. We have to explain how they both coincidentally hit upon the same precise detail. Yeah, that's I, that, that is very interesting, and like we talked about before, I mean, I'm certainly not a historian. From 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 my understanding and from what I've read, um, you know, the many much of the gospels um, or the four canonical gospels, at least, um, have very high percentages of of copying going on, um, mm-hmm. you know, b- uh, between them and stuff like that. So, and and so I I don't know how much reliability, like I'm. I am skeptical of the authenticity of the book we are now presented with saying this is God's word. Um, and uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was, just so you know, I mean, so we've got libraries um, of, of texts, peer-reviewed texts and journals, literally libraries, um, you know, like at DTS around the corner here, it's four floors. Yeah. And we're talking all these encyclopedias. The typical New Testament commentary, Michael, is going to stack up to your chest. Um, you know, the, the, bo- the book of Matthew is going to, you know, be like really large and heavy. Sure. I have, I'm looking at right now on my bookshelf, uh, the, the, the commentary on the book of Acts that I showed at uh, the debate with Delante. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're looking at, I mean, like, it's like 6,000 pages between four huge volumes just on the book of Acts. Right. And what's amazing is that half of that book is, is, is not even in the text itself. It's because it's citing again and again and again all these peer-reviewed papers out there. So there's a huge network of scholarly research uh, that goes into this. And, they're, and, and here's why I bring this up. is because they're aware of uh, the copying that you're referring to. Sure. And even although everybody agrees that there's copying going on, and, and we, can, we can sort of trace that pretty well. Uh, even in the midst of that, we can, we can point out areas that aren't copying. And it's in those areas that you can still identify independent, multiple independent attestation. And you can get authentic, you can get good evidence for an authentic Jesus saying on the basis of, of that criteria. I'd be really curious to get uh, some links uh, from you to uh, yeah. uh, to do some more research. Um, yeah. Just a, a question: We're talking more about the Bible. Do you view um, Do you view the Bible as inerrant? Uh, yeah. I, here's the thing: is is there's a big question about what biblical inerrancy is, um, and I, I don't know <laughs> what my theory of inerrancy is. Do you so, believe Do you believe a donkey spoke? The donkey spoke. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And and you believe that. And a snake spoke. And, a, and you know, like it, it, like these are like so be, because like to the to the person who's a, a skeptic or an atheist, like we look at these things as 
you know, like if you if you start from a presupposition that, and I'm I'm not calling you a presuppositionalist, but if you start from a presupposition that there is a God that can do this, then like mm-hmm. you know, guys like Psy Ten will say, you know, if 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 there's a God who can do anything, then a then a donkey speaking is child's play. Well, right. sure, um, and and I've heard you know I've I've heard the whole kind of if then argument posed by a few people. And actually, um, Gary Habermas mentions this a, a, f- a few times in the lectures. He was like, "If if this is if this is true, then this is child's play," and mm-hmm. and and that is, I think, that's a fair statement. If mm-hmm. if there is an all powerful, like you know, like the three O's, you know, omnipotent, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, or whatever. Um, if if that God exists, then yes, a talking donkey is child's play. But it's but why are you like why do you like why do you believe in that if, and and so that's why I asked you the question about Bible inerrancy because the same thing where like we have the books because if if we look at the Bible I mean the Bible is what's been you know canonized right but we don't or I don't know how much of we know I don't know how much we know of whether or not we're getting the whole story or whether or not we're getting what has been presented to us. You know, there's all the books of the Bible that weren't canonized, yeah. right? And, all the, and, the, and the Bible was written by a, a, a bunch of anonymous authors and translated by a bunch of anonymous people into, into the version that we have today. And how much of it is actually accurate from the, from the original writings. Yeah. And that's... that's, that's uh, go ahead. I was going to just, okay, to cover a, a few of these things. I mean, at the top, if we're going to make the case for Jesus' resurrection, we, we don't need anything close to biblical inerrancy. Um, Gary Habermas's whole approach, um, I know from his other writings, is to point out facts uh, that are widely recognized by non-Christian scholars. These are scholars who are anything but biblical inerrantists. They'll chuck out almost all of the Bible as unreliable. But the point is, is using uh, secular historical methods and criteria, we can, looking at these documents, uh, do some detective work. And we can reach some pretty firm conclusions as a result of that detective work. And, and what Gary wants to do is he, he thinks that we can build, and I agree with him, and this is sort of the hot argument now, we can build a case for the resurrection just using some what are what many perceive to be, uh, what is widely thought to be, facts, even in the secular community. Um, and, and you don't even have to talk about uh, the, these other details. Um, I would say that, incidentally, uh, this idea that they were copied over and over again um, it, I, there's a misunderstanding about the number of manuscripts we have. Uh, we're talking, you know, over 25,000 of these manuscripts. And what that allows you to do is a lot of triangulation uh, because of, of the dating and the, and the diversity of, and location of these manuscripts. Um, we, can, we can check to see where deviants come into play. And this is cataloged very well so that you do have, um, you know, the most critical non-Christian scholars will say, yeah, at least for the New Testament, you're looking at a 98 point something, some high number. Uh, it's at least 98. I actually know 99, 99, like 99.8% textual purity. The Old Testament's a different story. That's only like 95% textually pure and 5% is a lot. Um, but there are other things to say there. Well, but yeah, at I guess, least in the New Testament, which we're talking about. Well, I guess yeah, considering that the the Old Testament is so much more of the Bible, um, that yeah, that that five percent could be a lot. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I think I agree with you on on that. It's interesting because of if you um, have you read any um, like for instance, have you read um, uh, Richard Carrier's on the historicity of Jesus? 
No. Oh, yeah. actually, I have. I did. I did read that. Yes, I didn't read. It, I listened to it. Yeah. Well, no. Okay. So confession. So did I. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I met him when he was at a CFI event uh, in Toronto a year and a half or so ago, and uh, we, we we chatted for a little bit. He was not an easy guy to get to get FaceTime with, but uh, we chatted for for a little bit, and he. Uh, you know, and it's funny because one of the first things that people talk about is Carrie is, you know, too bad he's, you know, he's, a lot of people believe he's discredited because he's not teaching anymore. Um, I don't know that that discredits his PhD in ancient history, but, um, you know, he, 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 he would take what you just said and say, well, you know, that's, that's not true. And again, not being a historian, I, I can't say what you said is not true, but when you look at what, you know, what other, you know, historians have said, and if we look at the number I, I don't necessarily – I'm not sure if there's truth in numbers, right? Because a lot of people could be looking at the same thing and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right, right? I mean there could be a bunch of people looking at something and they could still be wrong about it. And so that's why I'm not so quick to say, well, if 98% or 99% of people agree with it, it must be, it must be true. And, it, and it's, it's when we start looking at the claims like on the whole – Right, because I, I don't think you can pe- I don't, I'm not sure you can take away the Old Testament from the New and look at them independently. Um, and you'd have to correct me if you think I'm wrong on that. For, for, for this particular argument, for the resurrection argument, yeah, you don't need the Old Testament at all. all, all in fact, you don't even need most of the New Testament. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is important because uh, the way Gary presents his argument is he, he, for efficiency's sake, he is going to say, look, um, you should accept this fact, and we're, we're not going to be able to get into all the details here right. uh, because, again, we're talking. I mean, listen to, to get to the point where you can accept even some of the premises of the argument right. uh, that lead to the lead to these lead to these facts. Um, you're going to need to know Greek. You're going to need to have a, a, you know years of seminary uh, training, training in the classics, training in in literature, and how to be a historian and how to approach this material. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, people underestimate you, um, but people have no idea how deep it goes until they enter into it. And what I can tell you is when mythicists go into that training, they never come out mythicists. And that's, that's what happens. It's like when, when you have people who go in as young earth creationists and study geology, they, they very rarely come out as young earth creationists anymore. Um, and, and I think that's because the evidence is so strong. Uh, and I think we're finding something similar here that we wouldn't find this magnificent core, uh, uh, pattern of, uh, non-Christian scholars being, uh, confident that there is a historical Jesus. Uh, if the evidence, uh, weren't there, I, I don't see any, um, type of bias that would uh, orient them towards wanting to say that. And I'll finish with this. Sure. Um, uh, and, and you should know, here's what I'm finishing with, is that with Richard Carrier, um, it, it, they've been very charitable with him. He was actually invited to present at, uh, at, a, at a conference to present his model. Um, they're very open to it. Guys like the Jesus Seminar, you know, they would eat that up if, if they could. Um, these are, those are not Christian people at all. Um, but it, after all this time, I don't think Carrier has convinced a single other person on the planet uh, that has any relevant credentials. um, There is a guy, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, He's, he's in Europe somewhere. Uh, I think he was already a mythicist and he's already been writing against God's existence and stuff. I think he agrees with 
uh, with Carrier, but but Carrier's convinced no one, uh, and I think that says a lot. I think that's interesting, and and I uh, I go back to what I said before, like not being a historian, I'm not sure that I can, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to comment on it. Um, having looked at, having looked at both sides, you know, and and again. If even if I grant, like even if you say, okay, so we we can just look at not even most of the New Testament. So if like, are you thinking just stick to the canonical gospels, um, like Matthew, nope. Mark, okay. Um, so in, in in my debate with Dillahunty, <laughs> I went super modest, and all I wanted to work with for the entire argument just about was this First Corinthians fifteen creed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you remember the details. Um, but the argument basically goes like this: We um, we are able to discern in the letter of Paul's in First Corinthians. This is an undisputed letter of Paul among scholars. Some of the letters that are allegedly written by Paul, scholars will dispute. Um, like Second Timothy, most most historians don't think that Timothy that Paul actually wrote that. Um, everyone agrees that Paul wrote First Corinthians. Uh, so as you as you work through this, and even Richard Carrier thinks this, by the way. Um, and what, what, uh, he's doing ultimately when he gets to chapter 15 is he's trying to make an argument to these Corinthians. And in the midst of this argument, he's reminding them of a creed, a creedal statement that they already accept or a confessional statement. This is something they quote, uh, occasionally, especially like at, at, uh, baptisms or things. Um, and in this quote, what they're citing is that, um, Jesus had died, that he was buried, that he was, uh, raised on the third day and that he appeared to, uh, Peter and then the 12 right. and, and then to James and the 500. Um, and, uh, sorry. Um, and, uh, the ultimate, uh, so here's the, what the argument is doing from there is it's saying, okay, so what, do, what can we say about this creed? Well, it turns out that historians have been able to, um, I, to date this creed to be far, 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 far earlier than when the book of uh, 1 Corinthians was written. Um, in fact, the, the Jesus seminar that I just mentioned, they'll put it, you know, with Robert Funk and those guys, um, very, very skeptical of the, of the historical Jesus, hardcore, hardcore skeptics. Um, they'll say, look, this creed dates back to no, no later than 80, you know, within three years of Jesus's death. Jesus died around AD 30. And so they're saying, you know, within three years, James Dunn thinks it's within three months, although he, he's more conservative. Um, for most scholars, they're going to say at least within five years of Jesus's crucifixion, uh, this creed was circulating in the Jerusalem church where the apostles were. So the apostles were circulating this creed, and they were spreading it out to the daughter churches everywhere. Right. Um, and, and here's the relevance, is because now the apostles are proclaiming that Jesus appeared to the apostles. Jesus appeared to Peter and then the apostles. Right. And so you have to say, okay, well, maybe they were lying. Maybe that's the best explanation. Well, that's hard to hold given these other details that we know about the apostles, given, um, you know, the, what little they got out of, uh, you know, from a, from a worldly perspective, what little they got out of it and the enormous sacrifice uh, that they paid uh, in order to proclaim this message, what it did to them in terms of shaming them into the society in terms of what it, uh, you know, their comfort level, they suffered beatings, they risked death at least. Uh, I know Carrier wants to say, well, maybe they, you know, I disagree that they actually died. We don't have proof of that. But he can't deny that they risked death. <laughs> uh, that's enough. That's enough to prove that they really believed what, 
what you know this this proclamation that Jesus appeared to them and that they saw him. Well, yeah, um, but but don't you think there's a difference between saying I you know I believe that this thing happened rather than this thing actually happened? Um, like you know, I mean, maybe they were just. I mean, maybe they were convinced. You know, it's like I mean, you can. So I mean, I'm very much agree with uh, Matt Dillahunty's. Um, definition, you know, on belief, you know, belief is the process of being convinced that something is true or likely true. Um, so, I mean, but just because, just because they believe it, that doesn't make, that doesn't make it true. Of course, of course not. Um, you know, the <laughs> Muslims obviously believed in their faith when they ran into the Twin Towers. Sure. But yeah, that, doesn't make, that doesn't make, um, it doesn't make Islam true. Mm-hmm. So the argument is more nuanced than that. It's a lot trickier. It's a lot, um, it's a lot sharper. Yeah. Uh, the argument is this, is if someone, uh, if a group genuinely believes that Jesus appeared to them, this isn't the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. This is that they genuinely believe they had an experience of Jesus appearing to them. Right. Then we're in a completely different scenario because now if they genuinely believe that they had this experience, y- you can say it was a hallucination or maybe it was like a Jesus lookalike. But you, you can't it's, – it's completely different than just believing theoretically out there that, that Jesus rose. You're talking about something that they would have experienced, that they would have had a firsthand knowledge of. Um, and the firsthand knowledge is not knowledge that Jesus actually rose and appeared to them. All I'm calling attention to is the firsthand knowledge that they had an experience that seemed to them like Jesus appearing to them. And that is the detail that the non-Christian needs to try to make sense of. Okay, but I mean, are you prepared to concede that even though that they were convinced that they had this, that doesn't necessarily meant that mean that it happened? It's incredibly implausible, I, I think. Yeah, it doesn't logically entail it, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's not a logical entailment. But if the apostles genuinely believed that they had an experience um, that seemed to them like Jesus appeared to them, um, we're kind, it's kind of like saying, you know, I understand that you think you know you're in pain, but does that mean you're actually in pain? Well, like, for it's example, kind of, you know, like in, uh, in what was it, in Spain or Portugal, you know, um, years ago, when they believed, you know, they saw the sun stand still in the sky for a bunch of hours, right? And it was like, you know, thousands of people believe they saw that, but it didn't happen. Like, it, I mean, it, it didn't happen. Here's what's key is in that case – you would still uh, – we're not going to deny that they had an experience. You, you'll have to look into it. You're talking about, um, oh, the Mary uh, – I forget the name of it. I know what you're talking about, the yeah. miracle of the sun, right. uh, the Tima thing, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, in that case, I personally think that it's probably either uh, an illusion in the sky, right? So you, they're staring at the sun and then you have the waves – uh, of heat and, and atmosphere moving across that makes the sun look like it's moving. Yeah, who knows? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's a simple enough explanation. But set that aside, all that matters is we're not going to deny their testimony that they had an experience where the sun seemed like it was jumping. Right, I'm not so, going to deny that they had that experience. Absolutely not. And I'm, and I'm not denying that the people who say that they saw the risen Christ had the experience. I'm saying I don't see any good reason to think that it's actually true. The, the, the difference between having the experience and the difference between the reality, the, the, like in, in that, in that there's in those little details, that's where all the, that's where all the meat is, right? Because there, there's, I, I don't see a huge difference between a bunch of people believing that they had an experience 
that was recorded in the Bible. I don't see the I don't see a huge difference between that and a bunch of people in Spain saying they had an experience that we that we know in fact did not happen. We just have the ability to demonstrate because that it didn't happen because it's it's in it's in more recent history. Uh, as opposed to what it, you know was written down that happened in the Bible. My son firmly believes there's a monster under his bed. <laughs> you know, yeah. the reality is there isn't. I'll tell you the difference. Okay. Um, so in both cases, we have a seeming that they experience something. One one group says they're, they they have a seeming that the sun is dancing and moving up and down. The others say they have a seeming of Jesus appearing to them as a group alive from the dead. Right. The difference is is we have an easy super easy naturalistic explanation for one of them sure the other one in order to try to explain it scholars have done their best and the best that they've been able to come up with uh, i don't I, you don't have to tell me what actually happened all you have to do is give me something plausible something that would at least make sense that would that would render the resurrection explanation not the top dog in terms of explanatory power um, and right now, the most p- prominent explanation for what the apostles experienced is a hallucination. They, they, you know, group hallucinated this this very thing, um, and that that can be hard to swallow. The the alternative to the to the group hallucination hypothesis um, uh, done by Greg Cavan, he did his doctoral dissertation on the evidence for Jesus's resurrection. He's a hardcore atheist. He's debated uh, Christians on on the resurrection. Um, he, he thinks that the hallucination hypothesis is too hard to maintain. He goes for the twin brother hypothesis, um, where he, he defends that one. Uh, people used to defend the idea that maybe Jesus survived crucifixion and then he escaped the tomb and presented himself alive from the dead. Um, but that has been devastated. I can tell you why, if you're interested, has been devastated so thoroughly that no one, uh, uh, defends that today. Um, so there, there's, here's the difference, and I'll let you say something more for that, sure. is that there's an absolute desperation among naturalists, people trying to come up with a natural theory, to explain the apostles' experience. Whereas if you look at something like at Fatima, it, naturalistic, naturalistically explaining it is no problem at all. So well, are, are you saying that, that, that Jesus actually rising from the dead is more plausible than a group hallucination? Yeah, this is going to have to do with um, your background knowledge, is what, what it's called in, in Bayesian epistemology. So, for instance, if you're 100% sure that no God exists, um, then I would probably go with the group hallucination hypothesis. Well, nobody if you can be 100% sure that no God exists. What? Nobody can be 100% sure that no God exists. Right, I'm just saying if. Um, just so you understand how it works, the, the answer to your question is is that it's different for different people. For me, yes, it's far more pro- plausible, far more probable um, that it was actually Jesus appearing to them um, than that it was a hallucination. Um, because hallucinations are like dreams, and the likelihood of being able to coordinate hallucinations, especially in something uh, relatively complex, um, is so unfathomably improbable. Um, especially if any of the details uh, uh, regarding those appearances are, are accurate that we read in the Gospels. Yeah, but what we read in the Gospels, like when it talks about, you know, like Jesus appearing to the apostles and then to the 12 and then the 500 people. I mean, that was that was just written down by a, by a person, right? Like we, we don't have, and I'm, I've, I, know, I know that you have been asked this question before or posed this, this argument before. We don't have... 500 individual testimonies. We have one person saying 500 people saw Jesus. 
just just so you know, um, most uh, scholars who are pointing to this particular evidence um, aren't focusing on the 500. There is a little bit of division among scholars about whether the 500 is part of the creed. Um, so well, I don't even doctor Doctor Habermas seems to think so. In fact, yeah, in, but it, in fact, in the lectures, he says it's probably more like a thousand. He said, you know, he said if it was five hundred, well, because of society at the time, they were probably only counting the men, and so it was probably closer to a thousand if you figure there were wives and kids there. Um, right, but I'm I'm wanting to be persuasive to you, and in order to be persuasive to you, I want to limit myself to details that are. Um, fairly unanimously accepted by non-Christian scholars. And so you're thinking just the 12. Right. And non-Christian scholars don't unanimously accept that uh, the 500 was part of the original creed that was being proclaimed by the early apostles. But what they will agree on is that the apostles at the Jerusalem church were proclaiming that Jesus uh, appeared to the apostles. Uh, the, the apostles in the early church were proclaiming that Jesus appeared to us as a group. They appear to Peter and then to us as a group, um, and and then they live their life uh, demonstrating an utter conviction that this happened. And, and you have to understand that for Jews, when their Messiah was crucified, and this hadn't this was there were other Messiahs before Jesus. I mean, this people claiming to be the Jewish King. Um, what always happened when the Messiah was killed is they would either go home or they'd find another Messiah. Um, uh, one thing that made no sense uh, in terms of the Jewish expectation of a Messiah was the idea that the Messiah would be resurrected. In fact, this contradicted the very idea of resurrection that Jews had. For them, resurrection was something that happened to everyone at once. And yet here these apostles were out of nowhere suddenly believing that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to them. Uh, there was nothing – and they thought that, that it was game over. They couldn't have been more sad, more disappointed that this wasn't the Messiah. Uh, and ever, something changed them radically so that they were boldly proclaiming, holy smokes, Jesus just appeared to us. And they went risking their lives uh, built on that foundation. And that's what we have to explain. Well, it's interesting. It, it is very interesting. And like I said, I don't think we can get to all of this today. But um... – that's a that's a really good uh, that's a that's a good talk. I um I do I really do want you to uh, to send me. I'll give you an email address when we get off the uh, when we get off the call that uh, you can send me some links to because I want to read uh, I want to yeah. read this stuff for sure. Um, what am I sending you the link of? It was multiple attestation. Maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The multiple attestation. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to the the work you're doing now. Yeah. Um, uh, belief map. So. Oh, yeah. Um. I, I watched a little. I think it, you've you've got a great little. It's about a three minute tutorial. Mm-hmm. Um, you click on there, and uh, I I enjoyed watching that. I think it's a great little. I think it's a good way to give people an overview of exactly mm-hmm. what the site is before they delve into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I thought I found it was I thought it was good. And uh, I think actually that the site layout too. Um, I don't know if you're responsible for that, or whether mm-hmm. you had uh, somebody do it for you, but. But I, me. yeah, well, I commend you on the site layout because it's very well laid out. Um, yeah, I was just looking at my phone, and even the, uh, the the phone site is very well laid with the uh, the the toggle menu at the bottom. Yeah, that slides in the menu from the side is very well well done. Yeah. So um, so we we talked about this before, and, and and like I said, I I went through the entire site, like starting with you know does God exist, and working mm-hmm. all the way through, and I I found the 
I found the, 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 the name of your site interesting, Belief Map, right? Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to how you maybe thought of the name of that. Um, mm. For me, uh, and I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about this, but the word map to me was, I guess to me personally, was unsatisfying. And I'll tell you why. Because I've always looked at a, a map as a route of, of arriving at a certain destination, right? You know, Google Maps, you know, I, you know, I plug it into my GPS on my car, take me to this place. Um, and like I said, I started it, I started at premise one and I worked my way through and I honestly do not know how you came to the conclusion that you come to as you follow through the, like as you go through the map. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and well, I don't know what you want to say about that. <laughs> Well, so just to kind of clarify for people who aren't familiar, so the website's beliefmap.org. Or, yeah, yep, yep. And um, the way I, I've arranged the site is so that you can navigate it in a way that's very different from reading traditional articles. I think most people find uh, that articles can be boring, mm-hmm. uh, especially not like pr- at the precise level um, of detail that you want. You to, Oftentimes you'll go to an article and it's far too detailed for what you're looking for or it's far too simple. Um, belief map is interestingly designed so that it will tailor to exactly what you're wanting. It'll, uh, expand and open up, uh, as a conversation where you can find more details only when you need them and want them. But up at the very top, it gives you a quick, quickly as possible getting, getting to the point, uh, getting to the basic argument. Yep. And, um, and I think it was very, again, very smartly laid out in that when you click on and when you click on whatever it happens to be, like in the first, you know, belief in a God, um, it gives you like, you know, just a couple paragraphs, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then and then some answers to some typical questions. And yeah, that you can that you can then delve into more. And it's interesting because I found that, like, if if you start on the site, you can actually you can have a whole conversation with yourself. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, which, which may or may not be good for, you know, from a mental health perspective, but, um, but, but you can have a whole conversation with yourself, um, like, ju- like right on the website. I, I think it's very well laid out, but, but, but like I said, I don't know. And maybe it's hard because the whole, like the very first premise, I, I, you know, I stop there. I'm like, I don't believe this. And so maybe it's hard for, you know, for, for me, but uh, h- how would you, how would you suggest a a skeptic um, in uh, ingest your website, like take it in? Well, I think the way you did it um, is the right way to go. And if something was unpersuasive, then chances are you had an objection, which I hadn't mapped out yet. Um, and so, for instance, maybe we can run, run through one of them. Uh, the first destination, so to speak, in the belief map is is that God exists. Yeah. And on the God exists page, you're going to see, um, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten arguments so far. There's a lot more to put in. But in the ten arguments, the very first one, the very first evidence, we should say, um, for God's existence uh, reads this way. It says, the universe, all of space-time, has a cause of its beginning to exist. And this is relevant because the cause of all space-time must be able to exist independently of time, space, and matter. And it must also have the power or ability and disposition or nature to cause such a thing. And then I say this all sounds very suspiciously like God. By contrast, it's it's a uniquely awkward and surprising development for the atheist cosmologists because such a development was, quote, not even remotely expected. So this is what's called a Bayesian face-off. I'm giving you a piece of data. 
that fits better on one hypothesis, namely theism, as opposed to the competing hypothesis, atheism. And if a, if a piece of data – you asked for my definition of evidence earlier. This sure. is it. Yeah. Um, piece of data is evidence for hypothesis one just in case that evidence is more probable or more expected on hypothesis one than hypothesis two. Yeah, but it's funny, the, it's funny that you bring in – sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Finish. Well, and I was just going to say and the idea here is that the universe having a beginning um, because of what it implies about the cause – uh, it, it, it's, it fits better. It's more probable. It's more expected on the God slash theism hypothesis than on the atheism hypothesis. And so it's evidence. Go ahead. Yeah, but the, the universe existing has nothing to do with atheism. Let's think about that. Let's think about that. So um, did, did atheism predict in any, in any fashion that the universe would have a beginning? I don't think atheism has any predictive powers. I mean, I, atheism, atheism is a... View. Atheism is a is an answer to a single question. Yeah. Do I, so, do I think there's a god? Right. So, if atheism is true, how much would one expect the universe to have a beginning? And you're just saying maybe 0.5. It's, we're agnostic about it. Well, no. Whereas, I, I mean, I don't. I'm, I'm not even sure that I agree with your statement. If atheism is true, I mean, the one, one simple statement I can say is atheism is true. And the reason that atheism is true is because I sit here not having a belief in an, in a theism. I am an atheist. Therefore, atheism is true. Um, it, like it, it, it speaks to nothing about the it speaks to nothing to the universe to abiogenesis uh, to the process of evolution or nothing else. So there's two ways we can go here. Um, one way is we can talk about the meaning of atheism. Um, for the sake of discussion, let's use your definition of atheism. I can testify to you um, that academically that is, and I know Matt Dillahunty uses that too, and that's probably a big part of where you got it from. Um, that is not. At how academics use it, and if you put that answer on a test, it's going to get marked wrong. I promise you. Um, if you go to belief map on defining God and you click on atheism is the view that God does not exist, you'll see that's heavily documented in every like I've got it here: the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, 2011; the Encyclopedia of Unbelief, 2007; the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Second Edition, 2006; Oxford Companion to Philosophy, Blackwell Dictionary, Western Philosophy, Religion Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Right. Um, unanimously in peer review, it has the same meaning over and over again. And that meaning, atheism, is the view that there, that God does not exist. There are no gods. It's not just a personal statement of I lack belief. It is a belief that there is no God. However, I know how you're using the term. You're using it as a personal, I personally lack belief. That's fine. Let's use your definition for now. Okay. Uh, and let's go back to what I was saying before. There's still a competing, the competing view to theism. I would call your view non-theism. I think I think that's the precise term, not atheism. Um, but now we need another word. I need a word that will denote the belief that God does not exist. What what can we use for that? Um, maybe anti-theist. Okay, we'll use anti-theist. Okay, so here's the idea: is we have a piece of data. And the question is, how probable is that piece of data on theism, and how probable or expected is that piece of data on anti-theism? Right. And th this is how you determine evidence. If that piece of data uh, fits equally well on both, then it's not evidence for either. If, if neither one predict or fit better with that piece of data, then it's, it's pointless. However, if a piece of data does fit better, if it's a little, even a little bit more expected on one hypothesis than another, then it's at least a little bit of evidence for that hypothesis. And the way that we come to conclusions is we have our initial 
um, what's called uh, prior probability for a hypothesis. And as we start to find more and more data that fits better on that hypothesis than competing hypotheses, we're accumulating evidence. And in the process, we're growing more and more confident in the hypothesis because it's making the most sense of things. So, so, how, is, so how is that not um, just a, a fancy way of the a fancy way around the argument from ignorance fallacy. I can't think of a better way of a better explanation. Therefore, God. It's in fact the exact opposite. In the case of an argument from ignorance, you're only wanting to say that something is improbable. I think you're only doing one part of, of the equation. Um, so well, you're saying you're something is say, yeah, but you're saying something is more probable. But but okay. So then so then how is it that um, you know the Okay, so on the assumption that the great Flaberber exists um, mm-hmm. and, and created the universe, that's certainly – even if there's a chance that that's possible, it certainly makes more sense than, than the great Flaberber not being the cause for that. Therefore, the great, there's more of a chance that the great Flaberber exists. Well, tell me about the – so let's think about the great Flaberber um, and let's talk about the detail of stars existing. Now, when you say the likelihood of stars existing given the existence of the Great Flaberber, I'm going to ask you, what's the likelihood? I don't know anything about the Great Flaberber. He's not on the benevolence or anything. Does he have the power to bring about stars? I don't know what, what well, you've got there. but I don't know. But, I just conjured that out of thin air. Okay. Um, the likelihood of stars existing given the existence of a Great Flaberber is exactly identical to the likelihood of stars existing on the hypothesis that there is no Great Flaberber because nothing – about the great Flaberber would lead us to expect stars to exist. But stars existed just because of the cooling of the universe. I mean, the, 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 the fact that there's more, that you think it's more plausible that a, that a god started the universe, the, the anti-theist, the anti-theist, as we're, as we're describing it right now, doesn't know, has no explanation for the beginning of the universe. Yeah, I mean, we can't go. I mean, like uh, we can't. We can't say we don't know what, why it started. So let's go with 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 this answer because we can't think of another reason. We're still learning. We can go back. We can go back as far as the Planck constant, and, and and after that, all our knowledge breaks down. Can I give an illustration that might help us. Sure. Because um, what we're talking about here is the nature of evidence, and, and maybe it'll help to give a more concrete example. Uh, and this is used in the sciences, by the way. This is this is our most successful way of evidence assessment in, in the sciences, uh, in, in, in being precise. So let's think about a murder case. Um, John is the suspect. And what we have just found um, is the murder weapon. And the murder weapon has fingerprints which match. I'm not saying they are John's fingerprints, but they at least match John's fingerprints. Now – all other things being equal, you know, barring weird scenarios, um, we naturally understand these fingerprints to be evidence that John is the murderer. Can we agree on that? Sure. Yep. And now we have to ask ourselves why. If you want to be precise, and this is, again, it's used in law, it's used in science. If you want to be precise, the way you articulate it is like this. The reason – why these John matching fingerprints is evidence of John's being the murderer is because the likelihood of those fingerprints being on the murder weapon, if John is the murderer, is not low. 
if John's the murderer, the likelihood that his fingerprints would be there is like maybe, you know, you can say 0.25, 25%, you know, because a lot of times people wear gloves or something, or maybe they wipe the gun. But 25% of the time, you can expect the, the fingerprints to be there. However, now compare that to the competing hypothesis. What is the probability, what is the likelihood that John Lake fingerprints would be on the murder weapon if John is innocent? Now you're looking at something like 0.0000000000001 because of the nature of fingerprints. It depends on the whole situation there. The fact that John touched something and then didn't use it to kill somebody is not necessarily evidence that he that he that he murdered somebody it's the murder weapon so yeah. john is already a suspect i touched all the knives in my house if somebody else uses that knife to kill my wife doesn't mean that i killed her you're hold on back up just to make sure you have the scenario here um the the victim's already dead mm-hmm. um john where is a is a suspect already and now we found the murder weapon that killed the victim. And on that murder weapon, we're finding John's fingerprints. Now, we agreed earlier that that's evidence for John's being the murderer. Sure. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying it's proof. Okay. I'm just saying it's evidence. And how do you determine whether it's evidence and to what degree it's evidence? And I'm telling you something that everyone will tell you. The way you determine it is you ask yourself, how, um, what's the likelihood if on the guilt hypothesis – What's the likelihood that you'd find those fingerprints there? Well, in the guilt hypothesis, it's not that it's not that low. No, I however, think it's probably pretty high. Yeah, 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 yeah. If John is innocent, however, the likelihood of his fingerprints being there, um, the likelihood of that murder suspect's fingerprints being there, is actually very low. The chances of him touching that gun, given no other information, is is very, very, very low. Okay. Joe, right. John yeah. would have just okay. been some random guy out well, in the world. We'll accept that. Okay, so that's kind of what we're doing. And, and in fact, we do this kind of reasoning every day. Whenever we're trying to determine whether some piece of data counts as evidence, what we're doing implicitly in our head is we're saying, okay, does, is this more probable on this hypothesis or more probable on this hypothesis? And if it's more probable on hypothesis one, then it counts as evidence for hypothesis one over hypothesis two. And the more, and the more that differentiation is, the more it's expected on hypothesis one than hypothesis two to a corresponding degree – it's more evidence. That's how it works. Okay, how does this get, get us back to God? Sure. Um, yeah. Because what I'm doing in this list, when I say reasons given for answering yes to the, God's existence on the, on the page, um, and I give these t- 10 different evidences, the first evidence is that the universe was caused to exist. How do you know that? Great question. So now you're going to click on it. And if you're even questioning the very fact of it, you, you could have questioned the relevance of it. But if you're just going to question the fact, then you open it up and now you dive in. And it will give you two arguments that the universe has a cause of its existence. The first argument is that the universe began to exist. Right. And everything that begins to exist has a cause is the, how the argument proceeds. Well, that's – I mean that's just that, – that's the new version of Kalam. That's actually – yeah, yeah. That's the – that's Craig's stuff. Yeah, um, well, that's the, are, that's the new version, right? Because the original Kalam argument was everything that exists has a cause. And then people realized, uh-oh, that means God had to have a cause. So then it was revised to everything begins to exist have a cause, has, has a cause. No, no, the argument even, even – so the Kalam is a, a Muslim word. Right. Um, and, and no, it was never – that was never the issue because the premise always said 
whatever begins to exist has a cause, and well, nobody ever thought of God as beginning to exist. Well, actually, if you if you actually if you get a chance, you can look up the debate between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens, and when Craig is giving his uh, when Craig is giving his initial argument, he mentions Kalam, and he actually he actually lists Kalam as everything that exists has a cause. No, he, there's no way he he didn't say that. It's I've watched the debate dozens of times. It's it's one of my favorite debates, um, and I he he says that in the debate. But I mean, I, it's well. I mean, seen, I know I've seen the debate three times myself, and I've I've spent hours and hours and hours studying Craig. And none of his published work, and all of his debates, and all of his powerpoints, it's always whatever begins to exist has a cause, or he might just be more straightforward and say, if the universe began to exist, then it has a cause. He he consistently his entire life he's he's said look you can't say that everything has a cause because and he'll give this a very example because that's disagreed among philosophers for instance if abstract objects exist uh, like numbers they don't have a cause and he'll explain this to people so if he said that it was a one time quick blunder. And it, it somehow slipped out against all of his training. Well, that's, that's in, uh, sorry, you know, and yeah. and maybe that's entirely possible. And I could be wrong, but I mean, it, even if I mean, even if we say, okay, yes, the universe had a cause, um, we don't know what that cause was, and it, and it's when you assert that you know what that cause is that you have to be able to back it up. No, yeah, I don't want to say that I I know uh, what the cause is there with any kind of certainty. Um, but I am accumulating evidence. And what can we say about the cause of the universe? If the universe um, is, is space, time, and matter, right? I guess. I'm, I'm not a cosmologist. But yeah, yeah I, th- it, I, th- it, I think that's probably true. Yeah, it's space, time, and then the matter therein. Yeah. Uh, time and all its boundary points. Um, if that thing came into being, if that then whatever caused space-time matter to exist obviously exists independently of space-time and matter. Isn't that a fair conclusion? Um, I, I'm not sure that you can – I'm not sure that – it, it almost seems like – and I, I don't, I'm not trying to be per, uh, purposely argumentative, but it's almost no. like you're trying to get to a point where you can assign cause to it like, or, or where you can assign agency to that cause. No, no. Just right now I'm just saying – can we agree that whatever caused space, time, and matter to exist exists independently of space, time, and matter? I'm not sure because I don't know what's outside the universe. If well, whatever's outside the universe, it's not more universe because that's a contradiction, right? Well, what about the multiverse hypothesis? You can okay. You can use the unit when Craig talks about the universe. He includes the multiverse with it. So, well, you talking about the, so, do, so? Do you mean more the cosmos, like everything that exists? That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I yeah. I don't know. There's, there's there's no competing theory. Whatever whatever like the multiverse would just be more space time matter. Um, whatever cause let's assume there's a multiverse. But yes, the cosmos. Whatever caused the cosmos to exist obviously can't be more cosmos because that's a contradiction. We we just right. talked about what caused all of the cosmos. But we have no idea what's outside of our physical universe. That's fine. You don't need to. But okay, all, so then, but, so then we don't. So then, the, all we can say is, uh, what's beyond our physical universe? All we can say is, we don't know. No, that's not. I disagree with you. Um, it, we can say that whatever caused space, time, and matter to exist has to 
exist independently of space, time, and matter. But if the cosmos is everything there is, then how do you, then how are you attaching this other thing to it? Because if if the cosmos is everything not, that exists, I'm not assuming that the cosmos is everything there is. I'm assuming that the cosmos is all of space, time, and matter, and that there's something outside of that. No, I'm concluding that there's something outside of that. I'm how, not. I'm not assuming it. How do you know that? And, because, and it, but but it goes back to the assumption that you're like you have to make you have to make this assumption that something has to, and that's where I think it goes back to. That's where I think it goes back to the fallacy in that, well, you know, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. So therefore, there has to be something outside of that. Whereas I'll just stand there and say, I don't know. Let's hold on. Just so we, we're, we're, off, we're moving. So sure. just recap the argument. The argument was if the universe began to exist, then it has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And you didn't object. I know you may have reservations about the first two premises. Um, but we were talking about the conclusion because at that juncture you said, okay, even if the universe has a cause, so what? We don't know anything about the cause. Sure. I, I'm, even prepared, I'm even prepared to concede that our physical universe had a – like that the Big Bang, the singularity, had a cause for its happening. I'm even, I'm even prepared to concede that, that, so, that quote-unquote something caused the singularity. Um, I don't see how that gets us to anything else. Well, and remember, when we're using the word universe here, we're, we're referring to the cosmos. We're, so if there's a multiverse, we're including that as well. Um, so if we're, if we're, let's restate it just so we understand. If the cosmos began to exist, then it has a cause. The cosmos began to exist, therefore the cosmos has a cause. And then your question is, well, fine, we can, even if I grant you that the cosmos has a cause... We can't say anything about that cause. And I, what I'm I don't you, think we can. That's correct. Yeah. Is logically we can know unless you want to say that the cosmos can cause itself to exist, which is is a contradiction. And do you think that something can cause itself to exist? Well, again, cause cause for me almost almost talks about like agency, right? Like I can cause I, I can physically cause an action to happen. Um, I. I Again, not being a cosmologist, I'm not sure. You know, but but if you like, if you have a lamp, and I'll, I'll use, a, I'll reference something that I've heard Lawrence Krauss say in debates before. Um, you know, if, if you see that, you know, you see that uh, the the light that whatever you're looking at is close to you now, um, the uh, you know the uh, the photon that was just emitted by that light source, you know, mm -hmm. it, it didn't exist a second ago, you know, and. You know, and and we have no idea what you know. We don't know what that cause was. I'm I'm probably screwing that up, but you know, it, like those things happen all the time, and there doesn't appear to be, you know, a, a quote unquote cause for that. There's even particles that pop into and out of existence uh, in the universe, and there's no causal agent uh, given to those particles. And and I think and that's why and I'm, and again I'm not trying to be argumentative, but that's why I kind of push back a little bit because cause. I, I, I'm the only reason I'm hesitant to concede cause in and I think the in in I think maybe the way you're trying to put it out is that I'm not prepared I'm not prepared to to let agency slip in there. And I'm I'm not slipping in agency at all. We use for instance you can say the wind causes things and yeah, even fundamental particles cause things to happen. 
Um, there's all sorts of causation in the world that has not, there would be causation, lots of it, even if no agents existed in the world. Right. Um, and, and, um, oh, I'm trying to remember your name, Dean, uh, you're talking about virtual particles. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but vir- these virtual particle pairs, they, they're, they're not causeless. They do have a cause. Um, and in fact, there are quantum mechanical laws that they depend on. Um, and they also don't come out of nothing. It turns out that space itself, um, vacuum, is not uh, the absence of, of everything. Uh, it's actually – it's got a rich structure itself. It's even called a quantum foam. Oh, yeah. There's all um, kinds of stuff, yeah. Um, Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing, is fabulous. Um, it took – I did read it three times to even have a gross understanding of it. Um, and you know, we, t- we talked about you know nothing. Um, it turns out that when you look at a patch of empty space where there appears to be nothing, there's tons of stuff there. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's there's tons of stuff in what we what we see as nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, maybe in the same way we're not historians. Uh, you know, I'm assuming you don't have a cosmology degree. I know I don't. Um, and so you know, maybe we're on the same shaky ground here, and from a historical perspective. But 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 go ahead. Let's, okay, so all right, the cosmos had a cause. Right. And, and for the sake of discussion, say, I'll concede that. Right. And, and can we also concede that something can't cause itself to exist? Um, sure. Sure. Why not? Okay. So if, if we're talking about the whole of space, time, and matter, and that, give that – call it Bob. The whole of space, time, and matter, call it Bob. Um, Bob cannot cause itself to exist. So whatever caused Bob to exist – has to be something that's non-Bob, has to be something that exists independently of Bob. What that means is whatever caused the universe to exist, we can know something about it, namely that it can exist independently of space, time, and matter. Right? And that's where, and, and that's where again, it, it, it seems like you're getting cl- – it, it seems like – and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you're trying to get closer to slipping agency involved. No, no. Like I'm, I'm almost waiting for you to say something had to make a choice or something. No, no. I'm not saying – right now, I'm just getting one de- – I'm just getting you to agree that whatever the cause of the cosmos is, if it does have a cause. I know you haven't even granted that yet, right. but let's say but, I convince you that the cosmos does have a cause. So, so along this, at, at what and, – and I, and I mean this with a, with a great deal of respect. At what domino – like as the dominoes fall of me ex- conceding these causes, at what point are you going to say choice slash agent? I don't have to say it at all. Um, at this point, all I need is to get some details that fit better on theism than on uh, anti-theism. Uh, as soon as we grant uh, that there is some bit of detail that theists got right, that atheists or that non-anti-theists uh, didn't predict, um, we at least have a little bit of evidence um, for theism. And it, it turns out that theists did anticipate that the cosmos has a cause, uh, that space, time, and matter has a cause, that something exists independently of space, time, and matter that brought this stuff into being. And I want to say that the Big Bang and the deliverances of philosophy in terms of the need of a, of a beginning and a cause have been a wonderful confirmation, a fulfilled prediction of the theistic worldview. And so, so it's evidence. And, it's, and so all that – and again, with respect, all that, when you fizzle it down, a, a dead Jew came back to life? 
No, no, no. I'm not. No, no. You, you know that I'm not saying that. No, no. Um, but I mean, but it all leads to that, right? I mean, like in order for you know, and like in order for that to like in order to get there, when you pull everything back, you start to okay. So there has to be at some point where theism makes more sense than anti-theism, and it's, and you and and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so we we've established at this point where there's at least a little bit of evidence that makes more sense on on theism than anti-theism, and if you start with theism, then you start to branch towards Christian theism, and when you branch to Christian theism, eventually you get to Jesus on a cross and everything else that it says in the Bible. So like it's 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 these incredible amount like it it is a you know and go back to the domino analogy, it's a long set of dominoes, but it's all like. You know, it's like it's like what Dr. Habermas said, you know, if then, if then, if then. And you do that whole if then, if then, if then. And I go back to the first domino and I stop it or I, I knock over the first domino and say, how, like, how did you get to the if? Like, because I, I can say if anything, that doesn't mean it's true. And my my ignorance or the the anti the anti theists ignorance of something is not your evidence of something else. You're quoting David Smalley. <laughs> no, a thousand percent. That and that's exactly where I got the line from. Right. Um, it's not just that line, but the very reasoning of, of the dominoes uh, you're getting from David Smalley's radio show. Oh, actually, um, I, actually, I don't remember the dominoes part of it, but the but the one and if I if I took it from that, then I'm I'm not even remembering where I got it. But the yeah, whole the you know, but the uh, the but the actual line, the my ignorance not your evidence. That's I totally I totally cop to that. I heard that on Dogma Debate for sure. <laughs> but just but you're. I think you're just to back up and, and like talk about what's actually happening right now. So we were originally right talking about the resurrection. Sure. Um, we moved on to a discussion of a uh, belief map. Yep. 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 And you wanted to say, okay, I like, I see what you're doing. You're trying to take someone from God exists, uh, down through, you know, Jesus is a real historical figure. Jesus stands out as if God's chosen. Finally, Jesus was raised from death by God. And yes. that's sort of the pathway. But Blake, I can't even get the first one. Namely, that God exists. Right. Like, how how does that even work? And what I was saying, well, let's 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 investigate a little bit. So, right. in, yeah. in establishing that God exists, um, I have listed so far on the map. There's a lot more to come, but I have these ten evidences listed. Um, and let's look at the very first one, uh, the very first piece of evidence. Now, the thing about evidence is it's not proof. Uh, just like you know, you you can have evidence that someone's a murderer, but nevertheless, that person's not the murderer. Yeah, that's um, yeah, and that's and that's fair, and that is fair. So when I when we talk about the universe having a cause and theists getting this prediction right um, and getting this really interesting prediction right, that doesn't mean that theism is true. It certainly doesn't mean that Christianity is true, but it's a, it's a pointer. Um, and as evidence seekers, it's something that we should keep in mind. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take in that piece of evidence, then the next evidence from the fine tuning, then the next evidence from discoverability. This, 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 and this. And I make a grand case that um, that we should believe with some confidence that that God exists. Um, maybe maybe it's a ninety five percent confidence that God exists. Whatever. But I want you to believe that God exists, or it, it, at least you know what I don't even need that actually. As long as you think it's not insanely improbable that God exists. If you think that there's like a thirty percent chance that God exists, the resurrection argument. Uh, you know, if I can convince you as well that Jesus is a real historical figure, uh, the resurrection argument can be enough for you to say, hmm, okay, I guess God does exist and did raise Jesus. That's entirely, that's entirely possible. And I think, I think with that, I think we've opened up the, uh, I think we've opened up the, uh, the avenue and the possibility for, uh, for, for many more in the way of, uh, 
of of talks and discussion, which I'm totally, yeah. which I totally want to have. There's a lot of things yeah. in there, like the, like the whole the whole fine tuning argument, yeah, teleology, and you know, ontologically, and all those yeah. other things. Yeah, there's each one of those things are very interesting arguments in and of themselves. Oh, Blake, we, now we've been going for an hour and twenty minutes. Um, time flies when we're having fun. Right. Um, how can uh, how can people reach out to you if they want to uh, have a conversation? You want to put some contact information out there? Yeah, please. Um, the simplest way is to go to beliefmap.org, and then there's sort of an about button. You can just click on that and get my email information there. If you want to write it down right now, if you've got a pencil handy, a less memorable thing is my name, uh, Blake Junta, uh, G-I-U-N-T-A. So you can just send me a message on my personal uh, Gmail account as well, um, blakejunta at gmail.com. And that's spelled a G I U N T A, and I'd be happy to talk to you. That's awesome. Um, I want to uh, I want to thank you for taking as much time as you uh, have uh, have had uh, given us to uh, to address some of these questions. And hopefully, we've uh, I think we've had a pretty uh, um, respectful discourse. Yeah, I I certainly was not prepared for this debate. Yeah, he came out with a lot more a lot more fire than I than yeah. I was expecting. <laughs> But uh, I, I, I want to continue this for sure, and yeah. uh, I encourage people to go to I encourage people to go to Belief Map and to work through it and to uh, and to send us uh, uh, email questions at the, the ca at rogers dot com, and uh, and we can uh, chat more about this. And uh, Blake, I definitely want to do this again. Yeah, me too. I, I love what, y'all, what you guys are doing. I think it's it's really great for people who are seeking the truth for us to be able to come together and reason together. Yeah, I, really, I commend you for that. Yeah, I think that that's uh, I think that's absolutely a good thing. And uh, yeah, no no living in an echo chamber. Yeah. Right. All right. I'm definitely going to email you, and we can have a discussion. All right. Yeah. Sure, let's do it. All right. So um, so we'll uh, we'll end this here now, and then uh, we'll say goodbye. Uh, we'll say goodbye offline. But um, I want to thank you again, and uh, we will uh, we will chat soon. All right. Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. Talk to you later. This has been The CA. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please drop by the iTunes store and give us a review and subscribe to get the latest episodes as soon as they release. Just a reminder, the views expressed on this broadcast are solely those of the hosts and are for entertainment purposes only. Never take advice from two guys expressing an opinion on a podcast. That's just silly. See you back here soon.